So you think you understand homelessness? Well, after you listen to this week's guest, you may want to rethink. You see, Paul Atherton was born in Cardiff in 1968 and has been homeless this time round for over 10 years. But his story will probably surprise you, confound you and inspire you all at the same time. You see, at three months old, Paul was abandoned in a tent at a disused airfield in Cardiff. Today, Paul is a director, TV and film producer in London, and his work has been widely praised for the use of the art as social commentary, dealing with tough issues from racism, sexism, domestic violence, and of course, homelessness. All the while, suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome and fighting every step of the way with government institutions for what he believes to be rightfully his. This frank discussion will open your eyes to a side of London that is little known and understood by us, but lived each day by Paul and hundreds like him. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Okay, well, today I'm delighted to have on the podcast, Your London Legacy, a gentleman called Paul Atherton. Paul is a a filmmaker, a documentary maker with a social purpose. He's got a fascinating life story and background. I suppose there's a bit of of an activist angle there as well in terms of homelessness and fighting the DWP for what is rightfully yours. And you've got an amazing story. Let's just set the scene where we are, first of all. We are in the... Uh, I don't know what we call it, the we're, basement. We're in the, yeah, I, I think the, the, the basement or the vaults of the Royal Society of Arts, which is, for most people, is known to be on Strand. It is actually on John Adams Street. The uh-huh. entrance is on John Adams Street, but most people see the RSA symbol from, from Strand as they're coming into Trafalgar Square. It's a building that's been here, or an organization that's been here over 300 years, and we fundamentally the the ethos of this organization is the ethos of my values so the idea is to try and do better with the systems that we have so the actual title the full title of the rsa is the royal society of arts and manufacturing and commerce and the idea was that a group of people went yeah making money is all well and good but there's another side to this there's a social side to this we have to understand our workers we have to understand how better we can create environments and things like Bourneville and Cabri's villages and towns were born out of that ethos now obviously they, they were Quakers but the very similar thinking sort of embeds in everything here in the RSA and this 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 is the values that most most fellows have is that you know we, we think there are systems they you know making money is probably coming to the end of its time now capitalism is definitely dead consumerism's on the rise so the things that we're fundamentally interested in right now are things like universal basic income which is paying everybody enough to live. And then if you work, you can keep the additional money. So instead of you working to make other people rich by paying your landlords and electricity bills and things, you're, you're actually earning money to better your life. And Housing First, which is this idea for homeless people, if there are homeless people, Sweden's eradicated homelessness using the system, that you just give someone a house. And even the Republicans in America are now agreeing with this because they, they've done the money and they went, hang on a minute, it's cheaper to give someone a house than it is to leave these people on the streets 
So <laughs> your passion shines through straight away there, Paul. <laughs> straight in at the deep end, which is what I like. Now, obviously, homelessness is something that's very dear to your heart, and we're gonna we're gonna come on to that. But I, but I just want to introduce the listeners to a little bit of your your history, get sure. a, get a flavour for you. As Dracula said in the uh, the three part series that was on the other night, I just want to taste you, see <laughs> see 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 what see what flavour you are, so the so the listeners can get a bit of a handle on you. So you say we're here in the Royal Society of Arts. You've been a, a, a fellow here for a, a year. It's an amazing building dating back you know many many centuries timing couldn't be better because i was only admitted yesterday oh. to, to become a fellow so i'm really excited to you to, welcome no it's, it's 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 a pleasure i get completely lost here so let's dig a little bit into your past you have a, a fascinating childhood right from day one so tell us a bit about how you were found one day on a disused <laughs> airfield in cardiff as a, as a as a wee baby just born you are it's yeah that's an interesting narrative because it's how it started was I, my mother, who was then 19 going on 12, as I like <laughs> to affectionately refer to her as, was living with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's mother in uh, in Caerphilly in South Wales. And I came along and for your listeners, my skin color is sort of brown, referred mm-hmm. to as black most people these days. But um, I, as a child growing up, they would have considered me mixed race. Mm-hmm. And both my parents were white. And okay. his mother went, yeah, well, that's clearly not your child, and threw my mother out of the house. She had nowhere to go. Social services, uh, this is in 1968, thought it doesn't matter how bad things get, the child is always better off with his mother. And there was a campsite on a disused airport in just outside Clantwick Major where they would house single parents and their children in tents. And my mother basically went to the local social service and said, look, I can't cope with this. I, I you know, I've... I've I've got this newborn child, I'm 19 years old, I'm living in a tent, I uh, put my child in care. And they just went, no. (laughs) So she spoke to one of her friends, and then one of her friends, well, if you abandon him, they'll have no other option. And sadly, instead of telling people she was going to do this, she just left. And I was left in a tent, and somebody phoned me six hours later uh, on death's door. And no fault of hers. And how old were you at the time? Um, I would have been four weeks old. Four weeks old? Good God. Was this like, um, I don't know, a, a city of tents? Yeah, for yeah, 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 it yeah, wasn't yeah, one yeah. tent no, on, no, on its no, own. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of, I'm guessing, and I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm still in touch with my, my original social worker, but um, I think there was about 30 to 40 tents. Uh-huh. Um, so but you were literally on your own in a tent, yeah. just left there? Yeah. And, I mean, you could have not been found for, well, for, I, day, I, for days? I, yeah, for days. Yeah, for yeah, days. It, yeah it, was, it was one of those, those fortuitous Things uh-huh. that somebody either heard me or did something and then discovered me. You were obviously squawking. You needed a feed or something. Yeah, like, well, it? yeah. I mean, my my mum wasn't very... My biological mum wasn't very bright. Uh-huh. So, yeah, when I used to cry, she used to pull my corsets tight to oh. prevent me from breathing, which caused yeah. asthma and bronchitis as childhood uh-huh. and things like that. But you still in touch with your... <laughs> no. Um, I decided I needed to go and find her when I was 16. So left school with the expectation that I'd be traipsing to and from Somerset House, because uh, that's where their birth deaths and registers were. And I found her in less than 48 hours because she was on probation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that's what determined you were going to cut the ties? You were not going to pursue I, it any it, further? Well, or? And, and actually, no. I, that, that was way more, more complicated. I mean, I, I was going to sixth form at the time. I was expected to go to Oxbridge. Um, and I was kind of going, I've just left my foster family uh-huh. uh, who I'd always referred to as my family so I'm, I'm just making that distinction now but I, I call my parents my parents yes my brothers my brothers but they are my foster family 
so yeah, my, my foster family parents got divorced when I was 10, then I carried on going and then I decided that actually I couldn't live with my mum anymore. So I left to go to a children's home at my request when I was 15. How does that work? How does that get permitted? Well, because I'm a ward of the state. So as much as my parents wanted, well, actually my mother wanted to adopt me, my biological mother refused, and that meant that I was never their child. I, I was always a ward of the state. Because but as a ward foster- of the state, surely their first duty is to have the interest of the child and to, to say to a 15-year-old, yeah, you're free to go and do what you want and live where you want. Um, uh, it was more complicated. No, than that. Well, so well, it, it's, yeah. it, basically, what had happened is I'd outgrown my mother, and I was causing her so much distress right. by my behavior because I was acting as an independent adult that she, was, she, she wasn't coping. I was like, look, having done some counseling and a whole variety of other things, I mean, I happily go into death, but it would take a time. Yeah, uh, we, we got to a point where it was just me going, all I'm doing is causing you distress. This is stupid. This is not my intent. You've done nothing but good for me. But at the same time, this is who I am as an individual, and I can't now go backwards. And, I get, you know, it came basically down to the divorce. I had two brothers. I was growing up in a mm. South Wales Welsh village, and they said, you're the man of the house. And I took that very, very seriously, mm. and that's what caused the conflict. Because suddenly I was, I, I, whereas my mum was 19 going on 12, I was 15 going on 50. So my, my attitudes and things were very, very serious, and I, I, I took the role of responsibility of the man of the house. And again, it's really important to understand this is a Welsh village in, you know, in the uh, sort of early 80s. Mm. Um, You know, the concept of this in the 21st century seems almost... So there you are in a very parochial, small Welsh village, a man of colour. Yeah. From a broken home background, I suppose. And I guess that you must have come up against quite a lot of uh, prejudice or... Well, (laughs) yeah, it's, you know, most prejudice, like most prejudice anyway... um, starts from the parents, mm-hmm. it, it's not the kids. You know, the kids will call you names, but it's not real prejudice, it's, you know, they, they, they'll call you Nick Nog or Sambo or... Nick, it was an uncommon one. My, my, the, the one I hate, the, the one that still actually gets me riled is Jungle Bunny. Because you're like going, that's two words that have no association one together yeah. that you've just decided to put together just to insult me. That yes. takes a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah. That's creative. <laughs> Thought's gone into coming up with that. But yeah, yeah I mean, one of my earliest memories, I remember coming out of nursery school and uh, a mother looked and turned and said, oh, you know, you don't play with that little Sambo boy. He's got disease. And I was like, what? That's shocking. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah, that's <laughs> shocking. But, you know, that, that, that was a culture. But I was very fortunate. You know, I had a growth spurt quite early on. So, you know, Battling my way out of some of these situations became quite easy. Mm. I had a massive fight in junior school that made me a bit of a legend because I just wouldn't go down. I didn't win the fight. I just wouldn't lose. Well, you took on one of the school bullies, did yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. So he was three years older than I was. So, I mean, you know, in junior school, you kind of tend to... So you, you lay down a marker. Don't don't come near me. <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll get you get as good as you... Well, yeah, it was just I wouldn't I wouldn't go down. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, it, and, and this became, you know, this he, he he's not going to go over, you know. So we, it started in the morning break and went through lunch break and then finished at the end of school and yeah so that kind of that that defined me and then I just became the kid everybody wanted to hang out with so for me that was incredibly useful but I think the most important thing was I grew up with a mother that said you will never meet an intelligent racist and you're intelligent so don't worry about it and she you know she said you'll whatever you want to do you can do and that's how I grew up and you know when I came to London that became like a huge thing because suddenly I'm like going this is the most multicultural place I've ever experienced or seen. And here we are, 
in a town where literally you can do anything. So what age did you find yourself walking the, uh, the streets paved with gold? <laughs> uh, I, I, I moved to Hillingdon when I was still finishing my degree in Cardiff. So I was about 24, 25. Uh-huh. So we've moved fairly rapidly <laughs> through, through the years. I just trying to fill in some of the gaps. So when you left home, well, you were about 16, I think. Is it 15? Or um, I, I was 15 when I went to a, what, the, what was known as a children's home. And I finished my, what was then in O-levels, GCSEs, from there. And then from uh, the children's home, I went to a family unit home in Penturk, which is just on the outskirts of Cardiff, and went to a mixed school, which was a very new thing for me because I went to a single-sex school mm. in, in the Valley called Rada Comprehensive. Um, and it was there from there then that I decided I can't do the children's home thing anymore. I certainly can't do the education thing anymore. So I, I left all of that. And this is when I found my biological mother. So I left the school to find my biological mother, found her within days, and then went, okay, that's addressed that issue, which was basically fundamentally, is there a genetic reason why I can quit school without really thinking about it? Because I've been brought up with this notion that you go to school, you get a university education, you get a fabulous job, you marry, have kids, and and that's your ambition, right? Yeah. And suddenly, I, I literally woke up one day and went, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that sounds like a really stupid idea. Doesn't it? Um, and I needed to find out why it was so easy, which is why I then went went to, to see if there was a genetic connection uh-huh. propensity to that, and that there was. Um, and once I'd found that, I was like, fine. So I left the children's home set up my first house when i was 16 wow um in cardiff in and that was a shared house with other people or uh, you, you i know it was my own flat so you just rented it yourself yeah i had to sort of lie on contracts obviously because i wasn't 18 so by definition sure. um, and how did you fund that i mean you must have had a job um, I, I i was then doing what was known as a youth training scheme which i'm uh-huh. sure you'll recall but yes. um which was an apprenticeship that the government had run i was working in howell's department store which was part of the house of fraser group even then yeah and alpha had bought it uh, the House of Fraser Group whilst I was there. And then I had all these connections with Harrods because of that. So that's kind of how, that was kind of one of the first connections with London. That's an ama- amazing, <laughs> amazing story. Not many people will be able to associate with that, I would imagine. But um, to get from there to where you are today. So what, what you you're, you did your degree at uh, Cardiff University, did you say? Uh, yeah, I, Cardiff Business School, uh, University Card- of Wales. Um, and I did a business administration degree with a bias towards marketing and advertising, but I didn't go to university until I was 22. So by that time, I'd, I'd run pubs for a living. I'd uh, organized kids' parties. I'd been a Santa Claus. I'd uh, worked in the Department of Health and Social Security, as was, which became the DWP. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd had a plethora of jobs. And then basically, having done all of that, I kept saying I could do a degree with my eyes closed. And I thought, you know what? I really do have to put my money where my mouth is. So applied uh, to attend as a mature student, even albeit at the tender age of 22, um, and was accepted. But I had to do an access course first, which was the equivalent of doing A-levels, but for yeah. mature students, Yeah, uh, which I did in... So where did you see your life? Astronaut. What was the aim? What was the long-term goal? At this juncture in time, I don't think there really was. I, I, I wanted to get a degree uh, to prove that I could get a degree and get my mum to a graduation because my two brothers didn't have this. They just couldn't be bothered. So that was kind of important to me, and we, I achieved that. Doing the business degree, I set up my second business by the time I actually started that. So my first business was something called a fashion quarter, which was selling designer clothing directly from catwalks in uh, fashion shows that we put on. So we'd go to the local retailers, high-end retailers, and say, look, we're going to put this amazing catwalk on. We've got Models One coming in. We've got these designers from the National Theatre, yada, yada, yada. And every quarter, because in those days it was every season as opposed to summer 
spring, yes. it was summer, spring, autumn, winter, uh, we would put these shows on and we'd charge the shops to do it and they could sell the tickets to their customers and therefore cover their costs or they could uh, just give them away and, and offset it as a marketing expense. Uh, so that was my first business. But then I set up a touch of silk, which was a gift delivery lingerie business in my first year of uni. And the idea really was that my, my university degree would be supporting my business decisions. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, my business was way ahead of my degree um, because it was an academic degree. So my first year, my, my lecturers hated me. They were like, Paul, yeah, we, we know that's not how this works in real life. Can we, can we just accept <laughs> your first year is just about teaching? Where did you get the, uh, I'm fascinated to learn, where did you get this entrepreneurial spirit, given your background and upbringing? I, we, probably we, because of my background and upbringing. Do you think it was? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the nature of uh, survival. You know, you kinda, yeah, you, you, you've got to learn to hustle. And I've never really been driven by money, ever. So from a business perspective, that's not necessarily the greatest position to have. But a Touch Yourself was about proving I could set up a business with very little to no money, run it from my mm. uh, back office to the flat that I just bought, and it was the only flat I've ever bought. And yeah, just kind of prove it. it was meant to be a pin money operation. It was born simply out of a, I was stuck for a present idea for a very close girlfriend. And I was like, I've forgotten a birthday. Uh, this is way before the years of the internet and gift delivery services. And so the only kind of option you had was Interflora, which is a, a service where you can order flowers. And they'll yeah, yeah, d- no, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to recall that service. Um, <laughs> and I just went, well, what would I do? In a, uh, what I actually did was I, I put a bottle of champagne that I bought from a local off licenses in a cab and sent the cab up to deliver and that's how I achieved it but I, I thought well what would I have actually done if I could have done this perfectly and it would have gone silk underwear absolutely perfect beautifully boxed you know delivered blah, blah. and that's that that was the birth of the idea and then I I had to go and make this happen so you know I ended up going to a company called MB Whalings up in Leicester who made the underwear for Marks and Spencers we changed it sufficiently enough from their designs but their top four selling designs not to breach copyright but we knew that they were the top four selling brands you know and the um, silks I came to Bertrand's in London who imported the silks from Hong Kong who then shipped it you know and it, you just kind of build it up and I, I think you know all of those things came simply from my mother telling me you can do anything and giving me the skills and the abilities so that I could I'm a problem solver so you kind of you present it with something you're like okay how do you fix this problem so I get very frustrated in modern life because it's like you know if you want to fix housing give people you know homelessness give people housing I mean, it, it, it's, it's that simple but there, you know there's a backlash then yeah um so but yeah so that, that, that's really where the entrepreneurial spirit comes from it, it, it's a it's a drive to want to achieve things not own things not not make money but but to achieve things to accomplish things that other people have either never thought of doing or have never done and creating teams of people i'm a very social animal i'm not very good on my own i've got Mm -hmm. friends who love being in their own company but i I need to be surrounded by people and again i think part of that i was going to say that could go back to your early years yeah yeah. yeah. part of that was probably being abandoned so i'm I'm always very conscious that i i I, you know i like to have parties for parties every year and I, you know I was always the kids house everybody wanted to be when I was growing up in school yeah so I am um, and so all of that gave me the skills of team building negotiation idea generation and all of those make up a, an entrepreneur so you enjoy the process more than the outcome I suppose really outcome being money making you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're more into this the, the creative ideas and the, the creating solutions absolutely. for problems yeah Absolutely. And, and I, I think, you know, I learned very early on. I mean, I, the first time I was ever homeless was when I was about 16. And I, I remember talking to people on the street for the first ever time in my life. You know, every, it, before that, it was like, oh, there's a bum on the street. 
And suddenly I was, I was talking to this one guy and he goes, oh yeah, I was a solicitor. And I was like, what now? Yeah. <laughs> and another one, oh yes, I was an accountant. And you're like, huh. And then suddenly I had this dawning realization that actually this pursuit of money was what was causing the problem because the, the, these guys had sort of burnt out because, you know, they, they, oh, the wife wanted the, the, the latest Mercedes and I couldn't afford, you know. And you were like, why? Why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. But homelessness is, is a multifaceted problem, obviously. There's many different causes of it. So just to explain briefly why you were homeless when you were 16, and then let's fast forward to how you became homeless okay. in, in the modern era. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, the, the, the homelessness bit when I was, when, when I was 16, 17 was, was basically I was suffering with agoraphobia. And as you know, I'd, I'd, I'd met my mother. I mean, I literally broke every stress rating. If you, if you, you get one, you know, new home, new environment, new job, new. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> having yeah. met my my yes. biological mother for the yeah. first time, and it just correlated into this bout of agoraphobia, right. which resulted in me losing my job, not being able to leave the, leave the house, and eventually, I there was no money coming in. I couldn't pay the rent, and and that was kind of how I found myself living right. in a car park in 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 the centre of Cardiff. Uh-huh. So coming back from that was relatively easy how i found myself in the current situation that's a system problem that's a systemic problem so i was living in the white house which is a building just behind the royal festival hall i had views over saint paul's cathedral i had a swimming pool terrace overlooking the london eye underground what are we talking about what year are we we uh this was 2009 Uh so i'm now coming into my 11th year of homelessness um and i came to renew my tenancy and as you would do with any due diligence check my credit file and found that I had a very poor credit rating suddenly. And I was like, okay, that's a problem because I don't have a very poor credit rating. I have a very good credit rating. So I asked Experian and Equifax to send me their credit files over and discovered that there was some erroneous information, some information, nothing to do with me that was impacting on my credit score. What was worse was this was a debt that had been apportioned to my file four years earlier been investigated and removed. So it should have been cleared. It was a debt that was settled. It was nothing should, to do with me. It had nothing it to do with me at all. It wasn't all. even a, a nope. debt that you owned? No, nope. Just somebody with the same name, same date of birth. And so it wasn't even you? No, no, no. It's very common. Most people don't know it, but it's very, very common. So I basically went back to Experian and Equifax said, look, you've already investigated this. You know this isn't my debt. You've removed it off of credit files before. Here's all the data and information that we corresponded the last time. Get it off my file because otherwise I can't rent my apartment. No was a response. And I was like, what? <laughs> no. We, um, the debt collection agency don't want us to take this off. And I was like, well, that's lovely, but th- what's that got to do with the price of bacon? And they went, oh, you don't understand. We are not responsible for the accuracy of the information that we hold about you. And I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. By law, I have to give you this information. You can profit from that by selling that information to whoever you like, but you have no responsibility whatsoever to ensure its accuracy Mm. and to ensure that this is, no. And I didn't believe this. It's totally true. Uh, And then I went, well, who who oversees this? It's the information commissioner's office, the ICO. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get in touch with the ICO. So I got in touch with the ICO and the ICO went, oh yes, this sounds like a real problem. We'll we'll address this and we'll take 28 days to do it. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I've got six weeks before my renewal app. If they... I knew this was going to come off, so I was like, brilliant, no problem. 18 months later, the Information Commissioner's office sent me a letter going, Dear Mr. Atherton, we apologize for the delay in getting back to you. Well, that 18 months took my life away. Because without a good credit score, you can't rent. Without a good credit card, you can't have a credit card or a bank account or a myriad of other things. That's that we- just outrageous. Ah, welcome to the 21st yeah. century. And at this point, 
the even though the the estate agents who I was letting from knew me and they were like <laughs> and you've been a regular pay over your rent before without any yeah, problems. problems yeah yeah they they were like our hands are tied because the insurance that and the pins are subject to you showing a good credit, credit. Ra- rating so they had no other option so they were like well we can't renew and I was like okay I suffer with a disability known as chronic fatigue syndrome which I've had probably since I was 10 which is when I had glandular fever which is a general trigger but wasn't diagnosed until I was in university at 2021 and I had a relapse and I was rushed into hospital and I was stuck in hospital for three months at St. Thomas's and then from there I was discharged into a homeless hostel in Brixton and that's where my story is. So when was the flat in other words repossessed when was that taken away from you? Well it it wasn't taken away per se I just couldn't renew so it was 2009. So was that while you were in hospital at the time? No, no, no. So I, 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 having left the flat, I stayed with a friend for a bit. And, uh-huh. and whilst I was there, I was then taken in, in by, by emergency and ambulance. Presumably, knowing you as, as, I, as we do already, you're proactive. You, you must have told the, was it the information uh, commissioner yep. that this is what's happening to me. Yep. And Equifax and all the mm-hmm. other agencies. And they said, nah, not me, mate. Not yep. my problem. We're not doing anything illegal or wrong. The authority that they have, all they have... They are just considered a depository for information. That's it. So as much as they charge you to get access to your own information, thankfully now that's... that's so that information could be as erroneous, as false oh, I, a, a, over as you 30, like. Over 30% of, of credit files on in this system are wrong. Over 30%. There is a larger percentage that has debts apportioned to people that they pay because they don't remember whether they had them or not. Mm, mm. So it's a classic sort of, oh, five years ago, you had a store card, you didn't pay the last 50 pound on. You're like, well, I, did I have that store? I yeah, may have had that yeah. store card. But it's going to impact your credit file. Yeah. So rather than argue it, you just pay it. Yeah, That's theft by any other means or fraud by yeah. any other means. No, I, I remember going back several years, actually, we did have an issue with um, a credit score and the, the nightmare, it was a very small small thing. I think it was a credit, a, a store card or something. And the problems we had getting that removed were absolutely horrendous. Thank God it didn't lead to the problems that you subsequently uh, experienced. So, But no le- one's liable, you see. So you yeah, can't no, sue no. anybody. Everybody goes, well, we've done nothing wrong. And the government go, yeah, we were, we were late, but what are you going to do about it? You know, because actually we are the overseeing organization. There isn't an overseeing organization of the overseeing organization. Yes. And... That's it. So where was your income being derived at the time of you living in this with the White House? Um, Part and parcel of uh, disability benefits and part and parcel of making films. Making making films. films. Okay. So so you lose your home. You end up in hospital. Yeah. Are you in hospital for how long? Three months. Three months. So it's affecting your mental well-being? Oh, I I mean, by by, by the time I've got to hospital, I'm literally immobile. I can't talk and I can't move. For the first three days I was there, it was an absolute nightmare. But uh, once they got me registered in, and that was just on a very, very kind nurse battling my corner, because ultimately chronic fatigue is untreatable. So as far as the hospital were concerned, I was bed blocking, and they wanted me out of there mm. as quickly as humanly possible. But one of the nurses went, no, no, you know, this guy clearly can't move or walk. We can't just abandon him on the street. Although they did do that to another patient less than six weeks later, and he died on the street mm. in the wheelchair outside the hospital. Uh, but yeah, um, so yeah, it, it, this, this became the, the beginning of one of the most bureaucratic, insane administrative fights I've ever had in my entire life because I had the social services department within the hospital rowing with me on a daily basis <laughs> to the point they went, well, we'll put you in an old age people's home. And I went, okay, three meals a day, car parking. Yep. Yeah, I'll do that. And of course, what they were expecting me was to turn it down. And as soon mm-hmm. as I said, yes, 
they went into complete panic mode. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they were suddenly went, oh, we, we can find some accommodation now. And I'm like, okay. But again, you know, if, if I hadn't been given the, the still skills, attributes, strength, you know, character, whatever you want to call it, from my mother, I, I would have been on the streets and dead. Hmm. You know, no question about it. So when you were discharged from hospital... Yeah. Where did you go to from there? <laughs> they, they discharged me to a hostel in Brixton, a homeless ho- hostel in Brixton, uh, just on Epitel's Hill. And yeah, that was, that was quite, that, 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 that was, that was hysterically funny, uh, had it not been for real. So I arrived there, it's supposed to be, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm supposed to get carers, carers don't turn up for two days, so I don't eat or drink for two days. And yeah, I mean, everything they said about this particular accommodation was a lie. So it, it wasn't easily accessible in a wheelchair. It was uh, the, the carers weren't there when I arrived. It hadn't even been cleaned. The last person had had a heart attack, and the uh, the defibrillator um, plasters were still on the floor mm. of the shower. <laughs> you were like, oh, well, that's that's kind of gross. comforting. Yeah. And how long were you there for? Ah, yes. Well, I was there just under eighteen months, but my benefits were stopped because I'd been in hospital. And they were refusing to reinstate them. And because they wouldn't reinstate them, I couldn't pay the contribution I needed to pay to Lambeth Council. So Lambeth Council then tried to evict me from a homeless hostel oh, for, God's for being homeless. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mad world, isn't um, it? I, I, it's crazy. And again, you know, I, I, it's just the fortune of the people I've met and the, the connections I've met over the years that I was able to... Uh, Rosie Waterhouse is the, the head of investigative journalism at, at uh, UCL and, and a friend. And I said to Rosie, this is insane. And she didn't believe me. I mean, I've known her, I'd known her for years. And she was just like, well, it can't be that bad, Paul. It just can't. <laughs> and eventually, Heather Mills, a private eye, picked up on it through, through Rosie and went, this is insane, and wrote an article about it. And it was only then that they stopped my eviction. But when the DWP... By that time, it owed me six and a half thousand, I think. It had been just over a year and a half, nearly two years before I'd had any money whatsoever. Mm. And went to pay me back. They only paid me back half. And because I wouldn't give up this money until the other half, they eventually evicted me out in my wheelchair and put me outside the hostel. Good God. So you're, you're, you're homeless to this day? Yeah. Because I think in, in one of the blogs you wrote recently, you said, one, and one of the talks you gave recently, you said one of the biggest problems you have today is people's perception of what a homelessness, homeless yeah. person is or represents. Absolutely. Or what the media portrays it to us, in the, to the public as. Yeah. You find that still a, a, bit, a big issue? The oh, perception. huge, massive, absolutely massive. And, and uh, in a way that actually more often than not, I struggle with because I don't hide it. But I'm not necessarily, it's not the first thing I'll come up to you and go, hi, I'm homeless. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah. kind of like, hi, I'm doing this, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it'll come out in conversation. Because yeah. coming here today, obviously, I, I, I arrived at uh, Charing Cross Station, the underground. And as you walk up through the underpass, there are homeless, well, people, street homeless. Street homeless. Uh, and, and, I think uh, and that is what people believe to be the bulk of the problem. Yeah. But the bulk of the problem is, aren't the people Absolutely in not. the street. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the Paul Athertons of this world. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they really are the, the peak of an iceberg. And street homeless is, in itself, it's tiered. I mean, in theory, I'm street homeless. I, you know, I woke up this morning at Heathrow Airport, Terminal 5, and I got on the Piccadilly line, and I came across here. Tell, I, tell, tell, I've got to stop you there. Tell me about sleeping at Heathrow, Terminal 5. <laughs> How does that work in, in reality? It, it's tough. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there are advantages to it. But how, um, how, do, how does it actually happen? I mean, walk me through the process. You, t- you turn up at T5, or what sort of time of day? I usually... It depends on the security levels, in truth, at the airport. If the security levels are high, that means that the police are doing their rounds quite 
vehemently and, and get ejecting people. They, the police at Heathrow should be pointed out, though. They're brilliant. You, you know, as soon as they know you're homeless, they're, they're courteous, they're polite, they're, they're understanding. Uh, not the usual experience mm-hmm. with police officers and homeless. Mm-hmm. But at Heathrow Airport, they are exceptional. But yeah, so depending on when they do their rounds. So if, 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 it's, if it's a high security alert, you don't get there until after they finish their rounds. So you'll get the first night bus, say the N9 from Trafalgar Square, which takes about an hour 20 um, to get to the airport. And the first one leaves at 20 past 12. So you're getting in about 20 to 2. Um, and as long as you've gone by about half past 7, you're fine. And were, were you actually bedding down for the night on just one of the chairs, chairs there? Yeah. I, I, yeah, you, you do, you, you, you search for the two-seater. That, that is literally it's the golden chair. so uncomfortable. Challenge. I mean, these chairs, are they, they're metal, they're plastic yeah, bucket yeah, you chairs. Know, and, and, you know, um, most of them have armrests, uh, intentionally armrests between them so that there aren't two together, but there are a couple. Oh. Um, so you kind of, that, that, that is the golden chalice of, of uh, sleeping. And, and how many other people are there? So oh, over 100. Easily over 100. Seriously. Yeah. So if I were to go to T5 tonight and yep. wander in, I'd see... Up to 100 people yeah, sleep, sleeping yeah. there. Across the arrivals and departures lounge, yeah. Yeah. Easily. So you've got your own little community going on there, I would imagine. Well, I, I, people know each other. They, they, there's sort of a, a nodding acceptance. There mm. are people who do it that don't know other people do it, mm. which is kind of interesting. Mm. So I, I've, I've encountered people that I wouldn't, I, I know, but I'd never actually acknowledge that they're mm. there because they've never discussed I'm amazed uh, the airport authorities don't have their own internal security who sweep the, sweep the place 24-7 so well, mo- moving they, you on they, it's been really interesting because there is a fantastic private social services team there called Travel Care and uh, Travel Care in Terminal 3 and they basically with um, outreach organisations Thamesreach who I'm not a fan of but They've come to an agreement that basically it is better to have these people here providing they're not breaking the law or not doing anything than out in the streets. Mm. Um, which is why I'm saying the attitude from the police there is, is just such a different experience. I mean, the first time I've ever, I ever encountered them, they were about to move me on. And they suddenly started having a conversation with me. And then they went, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. Can we give you a lift? <laughs> and I'm like, huh? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're not beating me up. Wow. Okay. So you sleep there. God knows how. I couldn't sleep sat up on a, on a chair. I can't sleep in a bed <laughs> comfortably. You, presumably you wash and use the, the, the sh- uh, other well, shower facilities? Well, they used to have shower facilities. Now all the shower facilities are behind the first class lounge walls. Uh. Um, so um, I, I ablute in a gym over in King's Cross. Uh, the, there is a gym uh, by the same group in Covent Garden, which has the swimming pool on the roof. But ironically... You have to pay for a towel at the one in Covent Garden and you don't at the one in King's Cross. And the, uh, these are all the stupid, petty little things that you have to sort of accommodate all the time. You kind of go, okay, so I can get a £2.50 shower here, but I have to pay £5 for a towel, or I can get a £2.50 shower there, and they supply the shampoo and the conditioner. And the, you know, and the, uh, so you have to work out all the logistics of yeah. all this, and now you're familiar with it over all these years. Yeah, so yeah, where, where yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, nothing stays the same. So mm. you know, when, just when you think you've got a routine laid down, like I said, there the, the mm. were shower, public showers in, in Heathrow. For, for many a year. And that must play havoc with your, your, your mental sense of uh, stability yeah. and your, your, your <laughs> equilibrium because people thrive on, you know, having stability. If they want change, you know, they create change themselves, but have change forced upon you constantly. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I think, you know, part of this comes back to being abandoned. Um, mm. That, you know, I adapt to this, I think, probably far better than most human beings would. Mm. It's, I've tried as best as I can ha- to have it not impact on my life. So my, my, my London social life for most people is that of a millionaire. You know, I'm always out to a film premiere or a theatre. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, 
grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. Talk to us about your, your your lifestyle because that's obviously been the bone of contention. I think with social services, having picked up on some of your social media activities and saying, "Hang on a second, this guy isn't a ho- homeless, homeless, homeless guy." There is, how how yeah. could you possibly be no, there? Because I'm sitting here with you now with the RSA. You know, we're sitting having a cappuccino and a coffee, and you, you, you look nice and clean and you know fresh and a big smile on your face. You're not homeless, are you? <laughs> as, as the media want to portray a homeless person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, it, it's Okay, so th- there's a couple of things. First and foremost, I think people go, well, hang on, how come you're not begging on the streets? Yeah. And I'm not begging on the streets because I get money from the Department of Work and Pensions. It's a fight. It's a constant fight. I'm entitled to it. I have I have a disability benefit for my chronic fatigue. But j- just stop. I don't want to interrupt your flow, but do you not need a permanent address, a residential <laughs> address, in order to, to receive benefits? No. Okay. Uh, and that's always been true. Right. Um, it's harder in the 21st century because they are so insistent on you trying to have a bank account. And of mm-hmm. course, I won't have a bank account. So, I do so how do you get your dosh then? You have to go so, into the post office and... Um, they, they, <laughs> it's now run by a marketing firm called iMovo. iMovo are the company behind Vodafone's gift voucher scheme. <laughs> right. it, it's, and so what they do is they email me a gift voucher with a sum that I can then cash in any store with a simple payment sign on. Right. In reality, it isn't any store. In reality, you try and go to any store with a simple payment sign and say, I've got an iMovo voucher. They'll look at you blankly and sort of blink and go, I don't know what that is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're like, right. well, this, is, this comes from the government. It's like, well, does it have anything from the government on it? Well, not so much. <laughs> it's like, this is going to be really problematic. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, so it, it used to be what, what was called a simple payment scheme. Uh, which was run by Capital Bank, which was brilliant. So that was, you, you had a key card or you had a, just a pin and you'd supply it and they'd give you the cash based on on this. But now this is literally just a, a gift voucher. They, mm. they barcode it and they give you the money. So there's no way of tracking how much they pay, the DWP have paid you. You have no understanding of how much the amount is or for what it's for. You don't get like a regular monthly statement or an annual nope, statement you, to see. No, yeah, you just get these odd amount vouchers uh-huh. and, and you try and work it out based on the sort of when they've been sent and how much they come to. So whether you or not. don't get a statement to show nope. how it's calculated, nope. what they've deducted. Nope. Ridiculous. So you, so you don't even get a steady amount every month? No. Nope. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I, in the last 10 years, my benefits have been stopped three times. Uh, each time has been for over a year. Mm. So that means I've had and no Would you money. not know it stops until you turn up to, to get your cash and there's just no, nothing coming through? Um, well, they won't email you the vouchers. That, 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 I see. That, that's I how see. you discover it's, right. it's, it's a problem. Yeah. But, you know, the last time they stopped my benefits is because I was too sick to attend mm. the medical to assess me of for your medical problems, yeah, yeah, um, and I was like, "So hang on a minute, yes, but we 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 uh, we we checked your tweets, and I'm like, uh huh, and you were out in a cafe, and I was like, <laughs> okay, a couple of things, um, being homeless. Well, what do you mean by out? If I'm yes. in a cafe, I'm in, <laughs> not out, yeah, and I've got to be out because I don't have a place to live. And my favorite thing was they actually used this as evidence in a trial, and. The tweet says, too sick to move, stuck in cafe, can't get to medical. <laughs> and they wanted to use this as evidence, going, yeah. ah, we've caught you. <laughs> yes. But that's the culture we live in now. Mm. You know. So this lifestyle thing we were talking about yeah. before I rudely interrupted you, 
you, you do live the lifestyle of a, in inverted commas, you know, a normal, a normal person. Oh, way above normal. Way above. Way okay, above so normal. so elaborate. One of the key things to me, one of the reasons I moved to London was I, I'm, I'm a culture vulture, so I, I adore the museums and the theatres, the art galleries, the social gatherings, the debates and everything else in between. None of that has stopped. And in, in fact, it's increased because you need to fill up the time in your day. Sure, yeah. You know, whereas... Yeah. Joe Public would be sitting watching EastEnders in the evening. I've got to go. God help us. I've, I've got to figure out what am I going to do this evening? Where am I going to go? Uh-huh. And I live in the city where doing things for free is the easiest place in the world to do. Mm. So, you know, going to, I, I was at the Star Wars film premiere and people went, how were you there with J.J. Abrams? I was like, I turned up to the cinema in the morning. I got a wristband. I turned up to the pen and I went into the cinema. <laughs> it's not that hard uh-huh. because people don't know. They assume, you know, I'm, I must have spent thousands of pounds getting a ticket and, you know, when, you know it was, they, 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 they give you a lightsaber as you're going into the pen. Yeah. Now, obviously, the reason that cinemas do this is they want to make sure those pens are filled for the cameras. And that's the trade-off, right? You, get, you, you, you have to sort of stand around an hour in a pen outside a cinema going, yay! Mm. Um, but, you know, if it's the Star Wars premiere and you've got stormtroopers coming down and BB-8 running around the street, you, know, you don't care. No. <laughs> and yeah. they give you a lightsaber. Uh-huh. Um, you know, theatre... Um, in, in London needs their seats filled. And there are many websites for you know where you just sign up and they'll say, right, but there's a ticket for this show tonight. Do you want to go? And what, free or just yeah. underpriced? Um, uh, is often an administrative charge between three and five pound, but that would get you 180, 200 pound thing mm. to take. Mm. So you're living this life, which to the outside to, world, to the outside world, and particularly DWP will say, yeah. hang on a second, this, what's, what's going on here? A, he says he's homeless. Well, clearly he's not. And secondly, he says he's got this chronic fatigue syndrome problem. Yeah. And he's, he's out, he's mobile. So why are we paying him benefits? Exactly. And, and that spins right the way through our entire societal culture now. Mm. You know, they, we've had 40 years of, you know, people who are on benefits are skiving scum. Mm. So how do you counter those issues, those, those arguments when people say, look, he's out and about, he's at the theatre, he's at the cinema, he's, he's walking around museums, and yet he, he says he's too unwell to come and turn up for an interview? Right. Well, number one, I have a relapsing remitting condition, mm-hmm. which is... With the, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate, I, I, by the way. I, I, I completely understand <laughs> that. Yeah, so number one, it's a relapsing remitting condition, and like most relapsing remitting conditions, it is the hardest thing for the DWP to address, mm. because... There are days where I can't move and talk, and then there are days where I'm functioning. It's the mm. same way if you have cancer or multiple sclerosis or any myriad of conditions. You get good days and bad days, and on your mm. good days, you're going to suck the marrow at the bone because mm. you've been staring at the ceiling for the last six weeks. So what does a bad day look like for you? Uh, a bad day for me is staring at the ceiling, unable to talk, unable to move. Where would you be, though? Because you couldn't, um, you couldn't stay in the Terminal <laughs> 5 for, during the day, for example. Um, would you be travelling around on the buses or sitting in a... I, it, it, it's varied. I've, I've been very, I've very fortuitous. I've got a bunch of friends who've, who, you know, uh, support. I try and avoid that, like mm. the plague, because I'm not their responsibility. So sofa, sofa surfing. Yeah. But, you know... the when it gets to its worst, I'm in hospital. Hmm. Um, and I'm battling with the hospital because the hospital are going, there's nothing we can treat you for. So you're bed blocking. But I've, I've been trapped in my car. I've collapsed on the street outside the back of um, ITN studios and I've woken up there 14 hours later, just totally unable to move without anybody passing by. I've been trapped in my car for four days, unable to move. That was not a pleasant experience. Yeah, it's 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 very hard. Yeah. It, it's very, very hard. But you know, you don't focus on that side of things because if you do, you go mad. Hmm. So I don't. I, I'd, I'd rather go, yeah, this, this, this year I've done X, Y, and Z as opposed to this year I spent six months staring at the ceiling, either in the airport or in the back of a bus. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, traveling on buses, for instance, if I'm, if I'm ill but not immobile, 
you'll often just travel one end of the bus to another or on the tube from one end of the tube to the other. Just to pass the time of day and to keep, right, you can't keep dry. Yeah. yeah, You know, it's, it's like the, the distance between getting off that tube or getting off that bus is too great yeah. a, a journey to make, so you don't. Yeah. So there's a whole subculture, a whole world going on there that uh, Joe Public isn't even aware of. No. And choose not to be, let's be serious. Uh, yeah. Sweep it under the carpet, many yeah. people. It's, yeah. um, well, they, 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 their lives are complicated enough in mm. their heads. Mm. Um, you know, how, how do we pay the bills? Where do we go there? How do we do this? You know, how are we going to make ends meet this end of the month? You know, we've created a debt culture in this country that's, I don't think, equivalent anywhere in the world, including mm. the States. You know, we're now, we're now sending kids to university and telling them, you know, go get a £60,000 debt before you even start work. Mm. <laughs> like, are you insane? Mm. You know, but this is now how we live and behave and and the retaliation to that is that people go well you know nobody should have something i haven't got and that's now ingrained into in our society and to answer your question how do you address that is that you change the narrative um and this is what i've been trying to do with all my so this brings us on to your your filmmaking yeah so tell us about some of the ways you've gone about trying to address this 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 counter argument well I, I, i mean when i first decided so i i, I have a, a pr background so went from university, went to public relations, specialized in IT, and then got taken, head-entered by a, a company that just dealt with media, which was very odd for me because I was kind of going, why am I speaking to a media PR company? I just do technology clients. And the company was called Propeller, and their clients included Turner, uh, so it was CNN, Boomerang, Turner Classic Movies, Daily, Manchester, and Sunday Telegraph, uh, OMD were the largest media buyers, and, and I was sat in the room going, why are you talking to me? And they were like, yeah, see, the Telegraph have got one, an online presence and we've got no idea what the hell that means. And CNN are about to start streaming. We don't know what that means either. So we need someone in the room. And I was like, oh, okay. Right. So I'm the tech guy. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to do the tech talk. Okay, now I get it. So I kind of went in and, and discovered through that how the film industry works and how television works and how advertising and media support it and all the dynamics within that. What I couldn't do or actually what I couldn't do professionally was make something. So from there I went in, took a 45,000 pound pay cut, um, went in as a runner at 31 on uh, Prospect Pictures Good Food Live, uh, which I loved, uh, which is a, a live five day a week food program, mm-hmm. which got me in touch with people like Gordon Ramsay and Anthony Bourdain and all my, my heroes from a child. And it was kind of ironic because I was the only person that loved food. Everybody else was just using it as the best experience to, sure. to move on somewhere else. And This is before your homeless days in London. Um, this was the beginning. Um, so I was, I, was, I was still in the flat at this time. Right. But this was just about, about the start. So okay. yeah, that, I set up my first production company and the first thing I ever did was a, a docudrama for um, the community channel called Silent Voices. And it was about domestic violence. And the reason I picked that is I, while I was living in Cardiff, I was dating a woman. Her ex-husband grabbed one of his children one night, put a knife up to his throat, his, his son's throat, and threatened to kill his son if I didn't stop seeing his ex-wife. <laughs> now, he had a, an injunction against him, so he shouldn't have been anywhere near the building, mm-hmm. let alone anything else. So I get to a telephone, ring the police, and the police, yeah, it's domestic. <laughs> and he goes, has he hurt the kid? And I'm like, has he slit his throat yet? No, no, not yet. Uh, I can wait. Yeah. Um, and that infuriated me. So when this, this opportunity came up, one of the key things uh, a friend of mine had done was she was working with Demos, uh, the think tank, and they were investigating New Labour's new domestic violence bill. And they'd interviewed over 100 children. 
And she brought me the transcripts and said, can we make a documentary about this? And I was like, no, I can't put a 10-year-old kid in front of a camera going, so what was it like watching mummy get kicked to death? Mm. You can't do that. But these stories were so compelling and also broke a lot of the molds of what people think domestic violence was because they were all middle-class kids. They were all, they, they, you know, their fathers had been dentists or pilots or judges or lawyers, you know, and it was a complete contrast to that classic working class, I'm going to be, you know, this is a drunken. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is really important to tell. So working with a, a director called Charles Harris, Barbara Gorner wrote, uh, the three of us made this thing. And the important thing for us was that it was going to shift public perception about what domestic violence was. And that was commissioned and actually released yeah, to the public? Uh, yeah, and, and then we, we, we released it on DVD to raise funds for the National Centre for Domestic Violence. Ironically, originally I was going to give the donations to uh, Refuge, but Sandra Hawley, who's the chief exec then, I'm not sure she is still now, took umbrage because I was a man and refused to take the funds. So we, we, we then, and they'd helped us along the way. Hmm. And one of the problems that they had with the script, and I knew this was coming, we were like, she goes, but you make refugees sound hor horrible. And I'm like, yeah, we do, because we're talking through the eyes of children. Hmm. If you put a child in a refuge, even if it was Buckingham Palace, the first thing out of their mouth, this is crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, we, and, and it was that classic moment where, you know, not understanding how to read a script, not understanding how, you know, how to develop something. So they worked with us all the way up to and including um, release. Um, and then they, yeah, they, they just took a, it took, took a very bizarre turn. But it did do what it was set out to do. You know, people started talking about it differently. It, it shifted the, the, the tone of the, um, the research that was going into the new domestic violence bill. Not enough, in my opinion. But, but at least it stopped having that sort of mantra of, oh, you know, domestic violence, it's only a month of working classes. You know, and sure. Uh, and what about, again, it's changing perceptions, isn't it, reality? Yeah. yeah. What about the, the productions you've made to address the homeless issue? Well, I, I, I know you did one specifically about sleeping yourself in a car for a year. Oh, living in a car. Living in a car. Yeah, living in a car was a, <laughs> that was a bit of a misnomer, really. I was in the process of pitching to the BBC for a substantive amount of money for a documentary about Roy Budd, who was a composer. Um, and his widow was about to put his last ever opera on at the ENO, which is where he first performed as a six-year-old prodigy. And this was a, a story to, to pass up. And I suddenly realized that actually my, my homelessness is quite public. And I thought, if I'm going into the BBC asking them for a quarter of a million quid for a documentary, I can't be seen as being homeless. So that year, fortuitously, Ken Loach, um, I'd, I'd been given a heads up about Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. And I got in touch with Ken and said, look, I, I hear this thing's coming out in Cannes. It sounds brilliant. It sounds just a thing. I'd really love to do something campaigning with the film. These are my circumstances. Um, what we agreed on doing was that I would use the fact that I was living in a car as if it was a promotional tool of me choosing to Got live you. in a car. Right. Which therefore covered any rationale or rhyme or reason if I'm turning up, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on the best side of fragrant, for instance. It's like, oh, well, you're living in a car for this campaign as opposed to you don't have a house. So that, that was where that stemmed from. Um, however, when the film went to Cannes, it was so ridiculously successful. The marketing and distribution team took took it away from both me and Ken. Which film are you talking about now? I, I Daniel Blake. I Daniel Blake. Yeah. yeah. So um, the things that we, we'd planned to do never came to fruition. However, I think my, my favorite moment of all that was um, I'd approached Volkswagen uh, to loan a camper van because the, the, the plan was that I was going to do these interviews in, in uh, where I was living on Golden Square uh, in Soho. And I, I went to Volkswagen that any chance I can 
sort of borrow your new California camper van for two weeks to do this with from their PR team. And they were like, yeah, no problem, Paul. Where do you want us to deliver the, the camper van to? And I'm like, well, I'm living in a car in Golden Square outside Costa Coffee. Would that be all right? Yeah, no problem. So <laughs> a week later, this guy turns up in an 85, 84, 85,000 pound camper van, hands me the keys and leaves. <laughs> no document signed, nothing. Just entirely based on trust. Uh-huh. And that was a day that I was like, there's still hope. Yeah. There's still hope. And then they came back two weeks later and picked it so up. So you had the benefit of it for two weeks, yeah. did you? Yeah. Did you did you make any of that film then, living in the car? Um, I, I, never... I, I I did three episodes. Of it. Right. Um, um, so the, the the first one was kind of like the introduction, um, which set the whole piece up, and then there was there was one that I did at the airport, and there was almost a suicide note. Yeah, and it, it was just that because yeah, again, it was one of those things that you needed the impetus of the branding of I Daniel Blake behind it. And as soon as the uh, distribution team said, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Ken can't do that. No, so what other projects have you worked on in terms of homeless? Uh, well, everything at the moment is, is happening now. So I'm trying to get a, a citywide London art project off the ground, which I've now been doing for the last two years mm-hmm. called Displaced or Paul Atherton's Displaced, Dispelling the Myth of Homelessness is this quirky and uh, pithy title. Um, but it, it, yeah, it'll be just known as Displaced. And this is the idea of having my luxury objects uh, in museum cases on the streets of London using the Smartify app. And it's a treasure hunt. Now, we've seen it a hundred times before. You know, we've, we've had the elephants and the rhinos and the Paddington bears and the literary seats. Um, so using this exactly the same principle. But you go around searching for these items. Now, these items are things that I bought predominantly in my early teens and latterly then maybe in my 20s, but I haven't really added to it since then. But obviously all this stuff's now been stuck in a storage unit for 10 years. And how's that being paid for, the storage? Ah, that's coming out my benefits. So, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's nearly over two thirds of what I get in, as income goes out. Just goes storage. on storage. Why don't you sell them? Sa- hey, save on the storage costs. Yeah, well, you see, <laughs> this is one of those catch-22 problems, right? So obviously when I put everything in storage, the expectation was it wasn't going to be there for more than three or four mm. months. And these are luxury items. So to replace them, you know, the bang loss and television, 10, 12,000 pounds, the, the Natuzzi suite, that's another four and a half, 5,000, mm. the Savaro suits, uh, John Lobb shoes, you know, it's, it's about 30,000 in terms of cost replacement, but actually in retail value, there's zero. The bang loss and television doesn't work it's anymore. Today, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's a terrestrial television. We don't yeah. have terrestrial broadcast. Uh-huh. The John Lobb shoes are handmade to fit my feet. Nobody else is going to buy their handmade shoes. Same with the suits. So the, they, they were bought in the, as, as one-off pieces generally, um, which would just have a lifelong wearability. You know, if something goes wrong, you repair them. If, you know, if you get a bit fat or you lose weight, they, they, you know, mm-hmm. your, your tailor takes it in and out for you. And so they, they got stuck there. And then as the years went by, the cost of the storage unit exceeded the value of the items. Yeah. And then you're in a position of going, right, if I lob them now, I've just lost 26,000. So this is my way of trying not to have thrown away 26,000 pounds is to turn this these objects into an art project so that they have an intrinsic value to tell a story that I'd otherwise not be able to but tell. But I understand you've been struggling to get support to get this sort of uh, exhibition. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, 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 been a, it's been a funny thing. I did a, a project some years ago called The Ballet of Change which required planning permission. And there were films about London landmarks that we projected onto the landmarks themselves. And with that, it involved all kinds of museums, uh, the Victorian Albert, the London Transport Museum, the Museum of London, Pathé News, BBC Motion Gallery, and whole, and everybody just loved the idea and backed it. And we, we got a small amount of funding from the uh, Heritage Lottery. But again, that was one of those things that today you'd never pull off because 
Heritage Lottery in my initial sort of funding meeting went, we don't fund films. And I'm like, okay, don't call it a film. And I went, but it is a film. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't fund films, so let's not call it a film. And they looked at me as if I was trying to pull a fast one. I wasn't. Uh-huh. I said, look, we're creating material that if we put in a book, you'd fund. And I went, well, yeah. And I said, okay. So let's call it a visual book. <laughs> I, I said, call it an archive. Yeah. Call it a visual archive. And they went, oh, okay. And that's, that's how we sidestepped that. But that happened because the grants officer had just come from the private sector. And she, she was moving into a different arena. Had it been anybody else that was having So she grant, still had a bit of entrepreneurial flair about her. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, she totally accepted my argument as well. She was kind of, it, it's a completely valid argument because we, 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 would, we wouldn't even think twice about it. And, you know, you're, you're bringing out material that has never been shown to the public before. So the buildings of the Odeon Leicester Square being built, the Alhambra being put, torn down in the Odeon, being built, came from the organist at the Odeon Leicester Square who took the pictures as it was happening. Wow. And they're the only pictures in the world of that. And we were like, you know, we're putting this on display for the public. The films then went into the British Film Archive, so they'll... They are a constant archive that will be accessible in the future. And, and she was like, yeah, absolutely. But that, you can't use those arguments anymore now. P- people will go, oh, you're trying to pull a fast one. And you're like, no, it's just your rules are stupid. <laughs> yeah. And it's not for your benefit specifically, it's for the wider public absolutely. gain, isn't it? I, I, and always. And the, you know, this, the, this, is the, the, this is the hardest thing. So with um, Displaced, my biggest block has been councils. And we, we went to the city of London and we went through their city arts initiative and I had a, what I thought was an incredibly positive meeting. And they said, oh yes, it sounds like a great idea. We'll put it to the board and went to the board and the board came back and they said, yes, this is brilliant. The barber can love it. The Museum of London love it. Well, I'm, my video diary is in the Museum of London, so I'm really pleased that the Museum of London liked it. But, um, and, and it was all very positive. And I was like, this is great. This is how I'm used to working. You know, give somebody an idea, get a whole team of people behind it and then go, go make it. Uh, and then suddenly it was like, um, I said to them, this is what I want to do. So obviously objects in museum cases. And they said, oh, well, we've got a problem with advertising. And I said, okay, how about we just use objects that are only in relation to the city? So my Lock & Co hats, for instance. So nearly all my hats come from Lock & Co on St. James's. And Lock & Co invented the cook. Now, most people know the cook as the bowler hat. Mm-hmm. But in the store, it's, it's never referred to as a bowler hat. It's called, it's called a cook, and it's spelled C-O-K-E. And I said, look, Lock & Co came up with a bowler hat, the most definitive identity of the city of London ever. Sure. Savile Row suits. London invented the suit on Savile Row. Before that, no suits. Again, an epitome of things. And, and my John Lobb handmade shoes, handmade shoes, you know, again, one of those sort of epitome things of a city worker and things. So they were the three objects that we were going to put on display. And I said, in the context of a museum case and an object, tell us what we have to do to comply with your regs. Oh, we don't work like that. And I'm like, what, what, <laughs> what do you mean? You've got regulations that tell you how, how big these things have to be and how wide and how heavy. And, you know, just tell me what those are. And then mm. we can work to that mm. to be able to comply with your regulations. Well, nobody's ever asked us to do that before. And I'm like, well, here we are. <laughs> and, and suddenly we're, we're, in, we're, we're in a gutter fight. And I'm going, I, I don't understand what the problem is. I'm absolutely prepared to comply with any regulation. They say, well, you've got to tell us how big they are. And I'm like, well, within the, you, you know the object, you know, within the confines of the, the cabinet can be as small, as big as, as it needs to accommodate. Um, yeah, and, and basically they, they only meet four times a year. So that puts in huge restriction. And the last time they, they had a meeting, they said, oh, you've got to comply with this, this, and this. And I'm like, I can't comply with this, this, and this until you give me permission 
to let me know who's going to go on there because each of the objects sponsors their own thing. So until I, I know that Lock & Co are going to be here, such and such are going to be there, then I can go to the sponsors. So you're just going around in circles? All yeah. The, yeah. Presumably you could just put forward a proposal to them and see, you know, let them pick the bones out of that and they can come back to you and say, well, actually, that, you, that doesn't think, work. And we did go down that path and that didn't yeah. work either. Yeah. So, so they're just putting up barriers all yeah, the time, absolutely. basically. And they're saying no without saying say no. no. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's my experience now across the board, yeah. where as previously people would, would try and find a way of saying yes, people's automatic reaction now is to say no. And it's not even a valid no. So I, I don't mind valid no's. If somebody says, oh, I don't like the idea, or it, it's, it's going to cause us this problem on that problem. Fair yeah, enough. they could say, well, we can't work with that, but we can, we can do yeah. this, this, and this. But th this is just obvious. There's no collaboration by the sounds of it at all. No, which... Which, which, which for an arts body seems very odd. I get it all the time, and I've always had it through my life. No one's ever done this before. And I'm like, mm, yeah. <laughs> that mm. doesn't mean it can't be done, though. Mm. But do you think people see you as slightly, um, for want of a better word, odd? Because you... Odd. Well, odd, not... not I'm not, I, not normal I, I, because you're you're homeless. You're creative. You've got you, you come from a, a a background which isn't what they would perceive to be the arts, as it were. Well, I don't think anybody could argue that I'm not high. <laughs> I, I, I take great umbrage to that. <laughs> Way more high, brother. Um, I, I do hear what you're saying. Um, I don't know. I, I I think you know it's a question you'd have to ask other people. I I, I don't know how other people see me. Often, um, I you know I come from. A world where you know I, I say what I'm going to do, I get it done, and you know my 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 record speaks for itself more mm. often than not. You know, it's like somebody said to me, "So how I, why why do you think you can handle a project of this size?" And it's like you know when I was in PR, my my single client paid me a million, not me, mm. the company a million pound a year just for my services. So it's it's kind of like money doesn't really work to me in the same way as it does for other people. So since you know some some people see six noughts and. <gasps> Whereas I'm like, it's just just an another num another yeah. zero on the end. Yeah. Well, look, I'm mindful of the uh, the time. Um, very grateful to you for your time. Oh, so, okay. so before we wrap up, what are you what are you currently working? What's your present project? And that's the thing that's driving you right uh, now. Right now, the first project is the play. Um, so I've written a play called Fifty Years of Trying, uh, which is get a taster session in the Camden's People's Theatre on the 16th of March. Excellent. At 7:30. Um, and that really is basically Kafka's The Trial for Real, uh, which is my life. It, it, it's t talking about how, in a very humorous, tongue-in-cheek, kind of upbeat way, about you know the, the stupidity of credit files, the insanity of uh, the DWP. And if you, if you read uh, Franz Kafka's The Trial, uh, it's about Joseph Kay's uh, being arrested without ever being told why he's been arrested and going through a whole process of bureaucracy to his own termination without ever knowing what the hell happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, pretty much that's my life. So, yeah, so this is, this is being trialed, tested. I'm, I'm hoping the audience love it because um, most of my acting friends who've read the script really, really think that it just sort of nails certain aspects of just how insane the process what is. What does testing mean? Do you get it one night or a couple of, uh, couple uh, of nights? Just, just, uh, it's, a, it's a 20 minute taster. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a condensed version of a play that would last about two and a half hours uh -huh. or two hours. And so the idea really is to, is to give producers and directors and sort gotcha. of other people a, a chance to see the style and then uh, in this on this one occasion and only on this one occasion I'm going to play the narrator which is me. Mm-hmm. 
and um, then a, there's an actor who's going to do the flashback. So in in the actual play, it'll be the same person doing doing both roles. But the nature of the Camden's People's Theatre is kind of they they want to do something quirky. So I was I was more than happy. I've I've, I've performed in the Camden Fringe before, so I'm I'm not, I'm not coming at this as a, <laughs> a complete novice, although uh. relative nonetheless. But yeah, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is there's a photographic exhibition that I'm trying to get pulled off with City Hall and Sadiq Khan called Paul Atherton's Greatest Londoners. And this is a photographic exhibition of 12 people in the city who have treated me with respect and admiration and empathy in environments that you'd never expect. So Linda Rodana over at the Wolseley restaurant has been nothing but courteous for the 15, 20 years I've known her. This um, is the Wolseley on Piccadilly. The Wolseley on Piccadilly, yeah. yeah. So I had a good relationship with uh, Corbin and King when they opened the Ivy, and I used to be a regular at the Ivy. And, you know, since my homelessness position, you know, money is tight, shall mm-hmm. we say. So um, my, my birthday treat is Eggs Benedict at the Wolseley. That's lovely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like seven quid and you get a yeah, fruit juice for One of my favorite meals. So uh, for a tenner, you know, you can you can feel like a, a special human being Absolutely. For, for an hour. And Linda has been so lovely over the years that my son celebrated his birthday there. And every time I go in, I'm treated as if I'm royalty. And... She, she knows I, I don't have a house. And it's the same with Keith at Fortnum and Mason's, my perfumier. It's the same with Patrick Lamb in Lock and Co. Hatters. Um, and then you've got the chefs like Peter Lloyd and uh, Neil Wager and all of these people all over London in these salubrious establishments that normally you go, oh, they're, they're just going to look down and say, oh, scum, get out of my establishment. And yet these people go way and beyond. So this is one of those things in, in association then with Displaced is this idea of trying to get this idea away of going up. I didn't make any mistakes in my life. None. I bought the crockery that was going to last me a lifetime. So I'm, I, I'm not a consumer. I'm, I'm not just buying stuff for the sake of buying stuff. When I buy a pair of John Lobb shoes, handmade shoes, that's a three and a half thousand pound commitment. It's a lot of money, but it wasn't a show off. It was so that I had the best pair of shoes you could possibly afford for life. In the same way as my Spencer Hart Salvaro suit for life, the Natuzzi suite for life, Wedgwood crockery, which I bought when I was 16. Again, as I said, I was working in department store. That was a classic moment where I bought cheap in Habitat, broke a cup, went back to Habitat going, I've broken a cup, I'd like a replacement cup. They laughed at me. And they went, you can't get just one cup. You have to buy the set again. Fine, give me the set. And they laughed at me again. They went, that was last season's. So I was like, okay, <laughs> not doing that again. So I spoke to somebody at Howells and they went, oh, Wedgwood, fantastic. If they discontinue a line, they give you three years notice. In the first year, you get 50% off. In the second year, you get 75% off. And if they get anything left mm-hmm. they'll then give you your replacement and i was like well that's a no-brainer that's that's something then same with the circular pans and then the cruise and the global knives and all these kind of things where you got lifetime guarantees on things so you buy them once and that's it um and and the idea is to kind of go look just because i'm living on the streets doesn't mean anything other than society's failed me mm-hmm. i haven't failed within society and all of these sort of tokenistic things that people think represent prestige and luxury and success are actually totally useless if the system doesn't support you. And that's what this is all about. Well, I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you very much. With that and all your future endeavors. I mean, just for, just finally a thought. Do you see yourself being homeless for the foreseeable future? Uh, or do you think there will come a time when luck, <laughs> Lady Luck will shine a you know, it, face? It's definitely not luck. Um, Boris Johnson has come out publicly saying that he's going to, yeah, I'm going to fix homelessness. And I'm yeah, like, well, they've, done, they've all done that before. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but this time around, I'm, he's going to get a letter from me 
And this time round, it's, I'm going to say, look, of all the people who've experienced every initiative that's been placed out there by a government or a, a local authority, it's me. I've been through your no second night out. I've been through Thames Reach. I've been through crisis. I've been through homeless hostels. I've been through sofa surfing. I've been through street sleeping. I know every aspect of this now, and I can tell you that anything that you spend money on by giving to a third party and not getting a house is not going to solve the problem. So if you, can, if you can't solve the problem with me, and I'm articulate, I don't have alcohol problems, I don't have mental health problems, yes, I have a disability, but I manage it incredibly effectively. You know, I'm the easiest person to get housed because I don't necessarily want a house. You can put me in a camper van. You can you you you, you know you can put me on a boat on 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 the canal. I, I I don't need you to build me a house. I don't need a council house, but I do need a residence. Yeah. And if he can't fix my problem, he hasn't got a chance of fixing anybody else's. So, we're at that point of our conversation with Paul, where, uh, as with all guests, I ask them to mention one or two places in London that are specific to them. It could be a walk, a pub, a museum, something that's personal. So, Paul, just give us um, a couple of places that you particularly love, as I know you're passionate about London. I am incredibly passionate about London. Just asking me for a couple is... is, is <laughs> well, let's, it, let's go with two to start with. Is quite, <laughs> I, I think probably Hyde Park's got to be up there as, as, uh, as one of the most important. Hyde Park was pretty much where I spent the majority of time with my son uh, when I'd have him in London. We, we'd have picnics on the boats in the middle of the Serpentine. We sat, sw- swam in the Serpentine. It's one of the things I desperately want to do is swim in the Christmas Peter Pan race. Because we didn't really touch on your son in the, in, in the earlier conversation. No. But your son, how old is your son now? He's 20. He's 20, because you also did a documentary on him, didn't you? Well, um, no, actually, well, um, that, that was my video diary. That was video in the museum, diary, in, I should in, say, yeah. In, uh, that, which has been taken in the Museum of London, which we did very yeah, briefly, briefly mention. touch on, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, he, he was born out of, uh, well, he was born in, in London, but then his, his mother moved back to Cardiff, which is where we originally met. So Hyde Park is a place of special meaning it, to It's you. immense special meaning to me. It's, it's where my mother and I um, had walked around. It's where I'd usually spend most of my Christmas mornings at the Peter Pan race in Serpentine. Uh, and it had an association, obviously, uh, with my, my son growing up because it was, you know, we'd go down and feed the ducks when he was in his pushchair. Lovely, yeah. And then latterly, he came up with the brilliant idea of taking a picnic out into the middle Lovely. of the Serpentine. What's not to like about that place? Beautiful. So what's your second place then? That's going to have to be the Worsley. I love the restaurant. I love the whole nature of Corbin and King. I remember when I first went to the Ivy with my godson, and um, we were sat between Bob Hoskins and Madonna, and my, my, my godson was going, they're treating us exactly the same. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that, that's kind of why we're here. Yeah. And it's exactly the same in the Wolseley. You, you, it feels grand. It, it, it feels pretentious, but it isn't. It's it, a lovely place. It's beautiful. It in really fact, is. you just reminded me, my mother, um, she got awarded an MBE several years oh, ago for her, her services to, to mental health charity. And we went there as our celebratory uh, lunch afterwards. Oh. And you get treated, as you say, just like everybody else. The place is full of faces you recognise from TV and film and theatre and politicians. But it's just, it's lovely, isn't it? It's an old banking building, it is, I believe. It is. And, and I, I, I want to add just one more, and this is a quirky one. So this is a flat in Henrietta Street. And it's just above Old Bar One. And this is Carol Stone's flat. And without Carol Stone, I would not have the life that I lead. And that, ironically, stemmed from a party I held at the Ivy. So I, 
I, I had a friend that was coming. She didn't know anybody else. Asked if she could bring her friend. And I said, yes, of course you can. Her friend turned out to be a lady called Joy McKenzie. Joy McKenzie had that year been appointed Carl Stone's successor, although it never turned into being. But I had just finished reading Carl Stone's book, uh, How to Network and Make Friends. And she goes, oh, do you know Carl Stone? Have you heard of Carl Stone? I was like, oh my God, yeah. And she goes, oh, I can get you into one of her salons next week. Um, and from that, that's where I met Barbara Gorner. That's where I created my television industry from. That's where I met Helen Lederer. That's where I met um, Jenny Murray. It was one of my favorite moments ever. I was able to ring my mother and go, Mom, Mom, I've just been leaning out the window in a flat in Covent Garden with Jenny Murray having a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> so it was awesome. Day. I don't get to starstruck, but for some reason, Jenny Murray of Women's Hour, that was like, <gasps> Because, um, you know, I'd, gr- I'd grown up with these people. I'd yeah. grown up with these faces. That's so, you know, ha- and Helen Ledger's Christmas parties become legendary and a lot, lot of things have stemmed out from that. So without Carol and without that particular flat above... Well, she's oh, a legendary networker, obviously, and she a con- connector of people. So you just never know what's going to come from a meeting, you know, meeting you today and being here and this going out, you know, to all the people who are going to listen to it. You never know what's around the corner. You never do. So there are three wonderful uh, places three that haven't been recommended before or suggested before on the podcast so that's great we'll add those to our list lovely i'm sure on behalf of all the listeners and uh, personally i you know, wish you all the very very best of luck for all your Thank you very much. future endeavors and hopefully um not luck but hopefully common sense will prevail <laughs> and you'll get exactly what you're entitled to thanks very so, much thank you very much Paul. Well, before we go uh, can you just tell our listeners how they can find you and get in touch with you whether sure. it's on social media or through email yeah. or your website uh, the uh, i have uh, social media accounts i have a twitter account which is at londoners london that's l-o-n-d-o-n-e-r-s londoners london and on my instagram it's at a londoners london and uh, Facebook is Paul Atherton. There's a Wikipedia page about me, although I think that's had, sure a, is. had a, a, an interesting editorial hash of late, so it's nowhere near as interesting as it used to be because it doesn't have any of my personal background. But uh, And there's a page on Mepedia. Um, but if you just Google my name, Paul Atherton, A-T-H-E-R-T-O-N, you'll find my blogs and every other bit yeah pieces. in fact if you just type paul atherton into the search engine uh, filmmaker you will come up with a, a ton of stuff and there's a very good blog that you wrote back on the 2nd of september which is uh, last year 2019 which is quite long but it uh, covers a lot of the stuff we've spoken about in uh, quite a lot of detail it's a, it's a passionate discourse so I, I recommend everyone to go and uh, read that and listen of course to you know and follow you excellent thank you very much paul it's been, absolute it's pleasure. Been a pleasure thank much. you I absolutely love creating Your London Legacy for you, and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities only available via via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here, and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.